Good morning, Sarah Heffler. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I, you, well, right before we started, Sarah watched me knock over the entire mic stand. We had um, the Reason Roundtable guys and gals. Uh, Liz Wolf was here too the other day with um, Nick Gillespie and Matt Welch and uh, somebody that works with them at Reason doing sound stuff and production. And um, the studio, the more people you have working in this tiny, tiny little studio you get in and it's just like kudzu. So when I sat down to talk to you, I just completely smashed over the mic stand. But we seem to be in good working order now here on a Wednesday morning. Starting it was late. great. Yeah, I, I signed on just in time to see Nancy knock over her all everything on her desk, which I felt <laughs> like I wish I had on, you know, just for like a gif for every time I could be like, trusty girl reporter. That's nah. right. That's me. Clonk. Clonk. Anyway, we're here a little um, later than usual because of various uh, work stuff, but um, I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. I know. I know. It's been days upon days. Yeah. So um, I think you told me you had a little story you wanted to well, tell me. Well, something. So Mikhail Gorbachev died today. Did you know that? Or yesterday? He just died. Yeah. We've got a, Matt Welch has something up about a, a lunch he had with him in 2006 up on Paloma Media today. Okay. Well. Have I ever told you that I interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev? You did not. About luggage. You know, if we could have more agreement on luggage, it would be more I'm peaceful. I'm telling world. you, it's, it's one of these things where people don't realize that's really where all the heat is. Um, this is one of the strangest uh like reporting stories of my career. So like somewhere around 2006, I was contracted by a uh, advertising company that was working on a campaign for Louis Vuitton. Yeah. And they wanted me to interview Mikhail Gorbachev about luggage. Okay. What year was this? Like 2006 or 2007. Cause I don't know if you've seen it. We included it on the Plum media piece today. The, um, the 1997 advertisement he did for Pizza Hut. In, okay, in well, this is Russia. in that vein. Got it. Because okay. this is an this is an Annie Leibovitz photo of him outside the Berlin Wall with Louis Vuitton luggage. That's, this was a. It's like if you needed like a symbol that capitalism won that particular little standoff. It's Mikhail Gorbachev posing outside the Berlin Wall for a Louis Vuitton ad. And, you know, I guess, like, this is just, a, I think this is like a evidence of how, like, grandiose those ad campaigns were, like how much money was going into them, because this was like an online-only campaign. The, the, the company running it was French, and so they wanted an English speaker, which turned out to be a little bizarre. There were a series of different people posing. Like, there was also Andre Agassi. I'd interviewed him about luggage. Can share some did of his you, thoughts sometimes. do these interviews in person? Yes. So they oh, flew Sarah. me. They So they flew me to Berlin. Sarah. Oh like, look, I didn't ask any questions. I wasn't like, hey, do you really think I need to be in Berlin to do this? <laughs> You're just like, I'm going. I was like, okay, great. Let's go. And it was like one of the G8 summits. And he was there and they were going to take photos of him. 
And it was I, the most absurd thing, too, because it was like, you know, it was really during Putin's rise. And so there were like a million different things to ask Mikhail Gorbachev about. And I was explicitly told not to ask him anything political. And so like there I am typing out these questions and then I had to send them all to his like handler. And they were just absurd questions, you know, <laughs> How do you like how do you pack like or boxers or briefs? No, like how do you pack your luggage? And the, the the handler wrote back to me and was like, you know, you can ask these questions about luggage. I'm just gonna tell you, he hasn't packed his own suitcase in 20 years. Which is basically all you really need for the for the piece. It's like that's perfect. That shows right. you <laughs> exactly. So um yeah, so like I went up, like I was staying at this really nice, I think it was like a hotel hotel Sofitel and in Berlin. And then he was in the presidential suite, of course, at the top. So like I go up there with the, the, and we had a videographer and a recorder and it was just all this whole thing. And I'm asking these like absurd questions about luggage and also about his favorite. It was also about his favorite town. So he was telling me about Moscow, but it was very strange because he was speaking in Russian and so I didn't know what he was saying until the translator would would tell me what he was saying. And he was very animated. I mean, I think, by the way, I think he's a little drunk. Oh, he's a little drinky. Yeah, yeah. Did you and, see? You the, know, did you see the drinky, or he just showed up? I'm pretty like sure. That? Yeah, I think he was like sort of drinking while we were talking, but like he definitely like smelled of alcohol and like had this like his face was kind of like flushed and um and it was late at night you know they'd they'd been at the comp the summit all day and he's like pounding like he was a very animated speaker and it was this strange thing I'd actually, I'd actually never done um an interview like this where you're having to make visual like yes I hear you I'm nodding but I actually don't know what you're saying you know because I want him to feel like yeah okay and you know what you're talking about but I had no idea what he was talking about I remember he got very animated when I asked something about his luggage. And then he got really upset about how people mishandle the luggage when they're loading it into the, the baggage claim. Like I had no idea this was going to be like the thing that he got really riled up about, but he did. And he was like pounding on the table. And I was like, yeah, I know exactly. About oppression or authoritarianism. It's, you oh know, it's God. the way they load those bags. That's what really, really gets under the skin of the uh, leader of the unfree world. So freaking surreal to be there. I remember I was leaving and, you know, we were kind of chit-chatting and he was like, he was like, so where do you live? And at the time I lived in New York and he was like, I'm going to be in New York next week. And I was like, oh, hey, let's hang out. And he just thought this was the most hilarious joke he'd ever heard. And he like clapped me on the back and he was like, oh, she's whatever, whatever is like Russian for she's such a card, you know? If and, one of our uh, listeners can, can let us know the translation for she's such a card uh, in Russian, that'd be great. Sarah, that is one of the, like, you you know, you do wind up doing very, if you've been in the journalism game long enough uh, and during a time when we both were, when there was a lot lot of money. There was a lot of money. Yeah, there was a lot of money floating around. You wind up on some very strange stories. I got flown, I mean, I've got, I've been flown to a bunch of places. I've gone flown to Alaska to hang out with like crazy mushroom hunters in the woods. I've gotten flown, I went and covered Bruce Willis's foray in Idaho. But one of the weirdest things I got, I got flown to Hawaii to interview Minnie Driver 
about for like Marie Claire, they used to do this like, you know, it's essentially kind of like a what's in your makeup bag thing, but it wasn't that. It was like whatever little thing that they were deciding. And they flew me out and it was this crazy, crazy, crazy storm. Like we landed in an insane storm and had to be taken to like an emergency hotel that that was actually by a power plant. It was very odd. And I get a call at six o'clock in the morning from my editor being like, oh, by the way, the story's off. I'm like, He's like, but if, you want to, but if you want to stay in Hawaii for a few days, I'm like, yeah, by this power plant. Meanwhile, I was, in, I was writing a story about a girl who died of a heart-lung transplant in, in, in North Carolina, and I was so involved in that story. I just literally got back on the plane and, and flew home. But yeah, it's just, yeah, crazy, crazy things. But that I, think takes, that, I think, takes the cake. It was one of the most impressive and kind of unimpressive things I'd done at once. To and, interview and, Mikhail Gorbachev, dot, 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 about luggage. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah took one for the team. Yeah. It was, um, it was an amazing experience. Um, do you want to tell us yes, I do. about Portland? I do. I, I, I have to say I'm, I'm actually on the verge of, of being a little emotional here. Okay. So... You know, as are probably most of our listeners know, and if you don't know, you'll know now. Um, <clears throat> I lived in Portland from 2004 to 2019. Um, protests broke out in Portland, and I went and stayed on that story for about a year longer. I've written 28 pieces for Reason and The Dispatch and The New York Times and, and many other places about the situation on the ground in Portland. Now, I, it doesn't make me an expert obviously. Anyway, I hate that term, but I am familiar with the lay of the land. And because of this, I have been uh, contacted and am frequently contacted by people on Twitter and otherwise about what's kind of going on in the city. And this can uh, obviously sometimes be a disturbing, um, these can be disturbing incidents. Um, I leave my DMs open. I mean, you should as a journalist anyway, so people can contact you. Um, Anyway, earlier in the week, uh, I or actually about two weeks ago, I received a couple things saying um, you should just be aware that something might go down on August 31st, which is today. It is Ted Wheeler. He's the mayor. It's his birthday. And the activists um, of, of, of which Mayor Wheeler supported them often during the protests and riots of 2020 because it was very much the enemy of the enemy as my friend. So no matter was what... Was he the mayor at that time? Yes, he was the mayor and at that time. And he was the one that kind of got chased. Yes. Like they, so, they protested outside his house and stuff yes. like that. So he had been support... The reason he was supportive of the activists, besides the fact that he's, you know, he's very left and very progressive, was that because Portland hated Trump so, so, so very much. They'd been mm-hmm. marching since 2015. Trump sent federal forces. I was there reporting on that, getting tear gassed every night, et cetera. And it was the enemy of the enemy is my friend. So many Portlanders, and the, especially the vocal ones in the city council and the mayor, they were supportive of the, the activists. Well, of course, what happens when you give people that, you know, they're, they're really just reacting with violence. What happens? Well, they'll turn against you, which they did. Which they they, did. they, they turned against the mayor very uh, actively. They set fires in front of his house and danced around them. And they tried to occupy his lobby and his, you know, almost million dollar condo in the Pearl, which is a very nice section of Portland. And they demanded he move out. Well, he moved out, which is, it's so shocking. But that, that was the leadership at the time. And things were mm-hmm. so crazy. And things have not been 
getting better, but they also have. I mean, the activists, as far as I can tell, they've lost a lot of gas in the tank, whatever missions they had. Like, what were their missions? You know, sure. abolition of everything. That, that That's not going to work. And you get a lot of people in Portland that they're just, they're sick of this. But Portland has had a real, real troubles um, in the wake of what happened in 20 and 2020 and 2021. Downtown is very depressed. Businesses have not come back. And if people did not understand that this would be a repercussion of 100 plus nights of violence and fires and breaking storefront windows, you're, 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 you're fooling yourself. Sure. So of course. It is not a great situation. You still have interdepartmental fighting. You still have super progressive elements demanding certain things, restorative justice. You have a very progressive DA, Mike Schmidt, who I've tried to interview five or six times. He won't interview, let me interview him. And it's just been kind of messy. Well, so we've got this thing about, you know, there's going to be something, an, an action with on Ted Wheeler's birthday. Um, and I'll put a little link to the poster. I got to say, these little activist fuckers can make art. It's pretty good. Yeah, it looks cool. It's like and a concert cool. poster. And they do it overnight, man. Because every night when this was going on, there was a different, you know, direct action. And every day there would be a different poster. And pretty much every day it was tits. Anyway, um. I was not really so concerned that some giant conflagration was going to appear on August 31st because they just don't have a lot of gas in the tank. Things dissipate. The pandemic's over. People go on and do other things. However, you have had an incredible uptick in street violence in Portland. I mean, they're, they're going to break the record for homicides this year, and they broke it last year. Um, they're, on, they're on target to do this. Over the weekend, there were nine shootings and four deaths. Um, you've got this kind of street racing, which is illegal, that happens. There's street racing has been a problem in a lot of different cities. Yes. It's been a problem in Dallas as well, other it, Texas cities. In in my understanding, and, and I heard it because the, one of the last times I stayed in Portland, I stayed near Columbia Boulevard, which is sort of on the, the eastern edge of the city, um, and you could hear it. It was very loud, and it would mm -hmm. go on on the weekends. Well, now it's bleeding right into the city, right into Lloyd Center. Where Lloyd Center is like in the middle of the northeast part of the city. It's like the main mall. Um, it's 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 just it's bad. And there was a shooting, like random shooting. Some guy, an old guy, was driving his van. They're shooting. I've got a I've got a link to a video of it. And then someone else was killed. It's just sort of out of control. And people, again, they keep sending me this stuff, including Michael Moynihan last night at eleven thirty at night. He sends me a link to a woman that was murdered on Saturday, okay? And her name is, her name is Rachel Angel Abraham. And for at least the past couple of months, she had been beaten and threatened by, I don't know if it's the father of her children, but she had four children where she lived out on the east side. And um, Adon is his last name. And he kept coming in and beating her while the children slept and strangling her. And she had him arrested and he was arrested again. And he had a restraining order and he broke through his, he had an ankle monitor, which he broke off and on and on and on. And the, D, the DA was very well aware of this guy. And in the statement that was put out after she was murdered this past Saturday, after she was found with her blood soaking through the children's carpet, the DA puts out a statement saying, well, we knew that, you know, she was in grave danger. I'm, I'm botching the words here. I've got a long thread over on Twitter about it this morning, which is why we started late, because I was writing about this, um, that, that she was in grave danger. And so they set, you know, they deliberately set a very high bail. 
of $20,000, which means only $2,000 needs to be right. satisfied. That's a very, that's not high at all. That's for not, somebody that is uh, been choking their, like, what, that's yes. very low. Yes, which you've put an ankle monitor on him. And I, I, there was a lovely uh, attorney on uh, Twitter. He's a good follow, Scott um, Greenfield, who I asked this morning. I said, can you explain that? He's like, I can't explain this. I cannot explain the lowness of this bail. Anyway, $2,000 was all that was required. So a a fund that comes in called the Portland Freedom Fund, I believe they started in 2019 or 2020. They started a fund to bail out people who are black and brown and indigenous. And they came in and last month put up that $2,000 bail for him. Well, no, actually it was this month. And a week later, he murdered her. Hmm. Now, as I put in my thread, I... Do not care, as I as I phrased it. I don't care if you start a bail fund for left-handed Croatian tennis players. If that's what you want to do, you can do that. What I do have a problem with, and which is getting me upset and extremely angry today, is when you don't know what the fuck you're doing. When your your idea of justice blots out the fact that this man has been repeatedly arrested for beating a woman. And you put, they have literally have a hearts and flowers statement out today. Like, first of all, the DA points the finger at Portland Freedom Fund. Like, you know, we tried, we tried to Mm -hmm. set this high veil. They came bail and they came in and they undermined us. And then Portland Freedom Fund in their Facebook post is like, well, you know, the DA had said it was okay. Right? They have not They do not know what they're doing. And the problem is that Portland has allowed, because of all these goddamn repercussions that have been happening since Trump was elected and their deep, deep, deep Trump hatred, they've allowed certain groups that they felt were the good guys because they were fighting the bad guys to keep gaining footholds of power. Or if not footholds of power, they're just funding them. Now, I don't know I know about as much about the Portland Freedom Fund as as you listeners have just heard. And I admitted that in my thread. And I'm hoping that someone will give me more information about them. But one thing I did do is I went and looked up, you know, the people that started this, two gals. And they had a GoFundMe. And their, their, uh, their goal for the GoFundMe, and I think it was, it's a couple of years old, was $100,000, well, they raised $9,000. Mm. This is what happens with a lots of these groups. They sure. feel so much that right is on their side and that the community will obviously back them in their mission to get restorative justice or, or justice, for, you know, for centuries of, of bad behavior, which, which, <laughs> which exists. But in fact, the community doesn't do that. In fact, the community does not come in and throw millions of dollars at you now. During the protests, the activists did get millions of dollars donated to them because people didn't know whether to shit or go blind. They wanted to feel like they were going to be part of the solution. And so they gave money to things that were going to bail out the activists, which is why a lot of them did not get, they did not spend any time in jail, no matter how violent what they were doing was. And also, you know, that it was not considered violence. It was considered free speech. And don't get me started on that. I've written the 28 articles. I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes here. In any case, I am, I am pretty rocked this morning by this woman's murder and the fact that Portland, Portland has, has painted itself into this corner. And I don't know that they know how to fix it. I don't know that they have the appetite to fix it because 
any any kind of moves that they make for what I would believe is actual justice, which is to set a very high bail for this person, they don't have the appetite for it. And they've got enough people saying, well, sort of like, you know, Chesa Boudin, the DA who was recalled in San Francisco, who mm-hmm. I wrote about, there were they, they really thought they had enough gas in the tank to say, nope, our citizens believe this is the way to do things. Well, it's not. I'm sorry. And I, and, I, and people say, well, Nancy, it's, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an outlier example, murder. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that when Portland is on target to have the most homicides it's ever had, it's ever recorded. So I'm a little, I'm a little shook this morning. And I also, I just sort of wondered to, if I'm going to be heading back to Portland, um, I've had this feeling all week that I, you know, I keep thinking like every time I leave Portland for reporting, last time I was there was in March with Thomas Chatterton Williams, who was writing a whole bunch about Portland. I don't think he's really released a lot of that yet. I think he did do one piece for the Atlantic. Um, I think, is this the last time I'm reporting here? But I, I have a feeling I'm going to I'm going to be going back. Um, I, I mean, hopefully, you know, hopefully to hopefully to be useful, man. It's not it's not for me to complain. Who cares if I'm complaining? I'm not. It's to just try to just to try to be useful to the situation. So, well, I, you know, I, I always appreciate your your reporting on Portland. One of the things I would be curious to know is, you know, what is the reaction within Portland itself? Um are is is most of the city buffeted from this because it's kind of a spread out place is this just happening like in this one area uh is there a pushback uh like there was in san francisco well one thing i used to get a lot um during the protest in 2020 which bled over to 2021 was you know you know you or other outlets are exaggerating it's really right just down by the courthouse. Which, right, because I've heard from people that live in Portland that they don't really see this happening. Well, that's true to a certain extent. It definitely was concentrated. I mean, these poor buildings, they were so scarred when I, I had been gone for like three weeks. One time when I went back to report, I was like, wait, these are the same buildings. They didn't even look like themselves. They'd been so um, molested. Um, but then it doesn't just stay there. It, it bleeds into the Pearl District. It bleeds into um, um, Sandy Boulevard on the east side. It bleeds into areas. I marched with people, uh, meaning I was covering them as they marched through um, neighborhoods uh, in, in very residential northeast Portland where hundreds of people, many of them, you know, in black helmets, were screaming, wake up, wake up, wake up, motherfucker, wake up. And when I asked one of the, because I, one of the marchers, I was like, do you expect these people with children that are sleeping in this house, maybe their husband is dying of cancer, or maybe you have no idea, do you expect them to get up and march with you? And she said to me, oh, no, 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 no. What we want is we, we want them to feel as uncomfortable as other people feel. I'm like, okay. Wow. So it here's the thing, Sarah, like Portland is not actually not that big. It's a pretty small city. It is. And, and if it's happening like right in the heart of your downtown and granted, there are many downtowns that are quite depressed. Portland's downtown. Here's a news fucking flash was not depressed five years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Portland's downtown was incredibly vital. It is not vital anymore. There's a, some, there was a, I, 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 linked to an article the other day. People do not feel safe walking there anymore. And they don't. And also, what happens when stores are closed? What happens, Sarah? You own a you own a hat store and your window gets busted 
30 of 100 nights. You can't get insurance for it anymore. What do you do? Do you say, oh, fine, no problem. Love Portland. I'm staying. No. No, you move. Leave. You leave. And so, yes, there are still, of course, there are still beautiful parts of Portland. But to say that this, these actions and this scarification is happening maybe in five or seven districts. Now it's happening at the Lloyd Center, which let's grant it, it's a mall. Malls are dying. We know that. But this is affecting you. I had dinner um, with someone last night and a, uh, a sort of safe injection site had opened near her house. And the thing is like, people are like, well, what do you, what do you care if people are like, if people are trying to like help junkies uh, and, 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 you know, you shouldn't care. It's, it's part of the community. It's like, well, the reason I care is I'm eight months pregnant and it's on my street. And now there are people that are like lying there, overdosing, shooting up and pooping on my block. And I'm eight months pregnant. I do care. And yeah. Even if I gotta say, not- I, I lived across from a methadone clinic once in New York. I didn't realize that I had moved across from one. It it really does. I mean, look, I I'm all for the creation of methadone clinics, but living across from one is no joke. I mean, there is a lot of stuff like you're kind of living in. It felt like there were like zombies all around me. I, I uh, that I, that was very dehumanizing, and I don't no, mean that. I mean no, that no, people no. were sort of zonked out. They are exactly, and they're That's, doing I, very strange things. They're walking in the middle of the street. They're you know they're walking into you. It's 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 a strange thing. Um, I just I think that if it were the case that it was just concentrated on two blocks of Portland and it was downtown and 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 Portlanders, even though they didn't agree with it, were like, okay, you know what? We're willing for our for our mission and our goal and our you know stated higher aims. We're willing to let a two block. Uh, area of downtown, which incorporated the federal courthouse and the police station, we're letting we're willing to let this die and have a war there every single fucking night. If the you know what if the if the citizens agreed on that, you know what they can vote that in and codify it and do whatever they want. The problem is it's now in like seven parts of the city. So it's like if you have one little blister, it's okay. If you have seven blisters, you're going to start to get uncomfortable. Um, and you know, if you, if you want more, if you, if you're like, I need more police presence or I need there to be a better DA in there and it's not all the DA's fault, but it's not helping. Um, you're called, you know, you're called a fascist, a fascist, you're called a racist. And it's like, well, I don't like what's happening in my city. In any case, we'll see if I if I head back. Um, I'm I'm just kind of rocked by it. I'm I'm yeah. really rocked by the image of this woman with her four children, with her bu- blood soaking into their carpet. Of course, because, it's very because somebody just thought, well, you know what, two thousand dollars that's that's enough, and we feel good because oh, and by the way, the woman he murdered was was black. Okay, so this is also what you're doing. This is what you're doing. Is that an acceptable sacrifice for your mission? No, of course not. No. I don't think so. I don't think so. So we'll see. Um, as I said, they have a very hearts and flowers, you know, heart, uh, prayers and thoughts out to the victims kind of thing, which is the thing we always, always get uh, get down on people for, you know, anytime there's a school shooting. Well, they're doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. So. Woo. Woo. <sighs> And I promise not to rant so much, but that really wasn't a rant. That was that was different. Well, yeah, I know that was upsetting you today, and 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 yeah. it's it's a it's a topic that I'm grateful that you've been you've been following Portland. I mean, Portland is a great American city, and and yeah, I, I can't. I'm just I, I'm attached to it. So yeah. all right, okay. well, well, we have okay. other things to discuss. Yes, we do, we do. So. Um, 
I got an email of a couple, maybe like a week and a half ago from one of our listeners who told us about a documentary that we might want to check out. And it was about Monty Teo um, and a scandal that had taken place years ago. And I forwarded it to Nancy to see if she was interested in the response back was, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's on Netflix and it's called The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist. Now, I did remember this story and the way I remembered it was that this um very very uh successful college football player played for Notre Dame. I didn't remember that at the time, but now I know that since we watched the documentary, he had been up for the Heisman Trophy, which I do know about because they used to give it or they may still at the Downtown Athletic Club in New York City where my dad was a member when I was a kid. And when my parents would fight, he'd spend the night at the DAC. Anyway, um, <laughs> um uh I remember it being the case that his grandmother and his girlfriend had died in a short period of time, turned out on the same day, and then that it turned out the girlfriend didn't exist, and that maybe there was some idea that he'd made her up. And that's where my recollection of the story stopped. stopped. And that was in, I think it was in 2013. 2013. Oh, 2013, okay. dead spin breaks this story that this high profile college linebacker for Notre Dame that, you know, and, and my understanding is that this had been a really big story like all year. Every time they're mentioning Monte Teo, they're mentioning the fact that like this tragic thing happened. Uh, you know, <clears throat> he dedicated the season to both his grandmother and his, excuse me, uh, girlfriend his, who had died. And so the Deadspin story breaks in 2013, and it's this unraveling of this mythology that had followed him through the last year of his career. And, you know, we didn't really know what was going on at the time because the, uh, the writers that break it, uh, one is named uh, Tim Burke. I think the other guy is named Jack Dickey. Um, you know, they weren't really sure what was behind the hoax. You know, there is some suggestion um, that maybe Montetea was in on it in a way to drum up sympathy, right? Like you just said, um, there's some some speculation that maybe he's gay. Um, right. And, that and, he and this is all a sort of you know, cover, cover up. Yeah. 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 So um, this is the first time that we're on a large scale getting the story of what really happened. We should also add just a little bit about uh, Matiteo. He is, um, he's from Hawaii. I think he's Polynesian background. Mm -hmm. um, he was, um, before any of this happened, like in 2012, when he had his season, his big season, he's, he was, he was very, he was, completely expected to be a first-round draft pick for the NFL. I mean, he was huge. He was a hugely, hugely successful, hugely well-liked player, uh, Mormon background, very kept his nose clean, like really personable and just like a super, very involved with his family, just like a super like clean-cut Lovely, solid dude. Everybody solid, wants to be his friend. Dude. Every right. kid, everybody wants their right. kid to grow up like him. Right. And, 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 and he was just a shoe in for a first round draft pick. So this happens and I'm trying to remember Sarah. So his relationship with the, um, 
with the girlfriend who he has not ever met, who he's only spoken with on the phone, sort of has this sort of, you know, incandescence. They meet through Facebook. Um, she's super pretty. Um, you know, like you might do when you start to talk with someone on Facebook or wherever. You, what, what friends do we have in common? He contacts a few people that they have in common. And the people are like, oh, yeah, dude, I've, I've had some great chats with her. They haven't met her either. But and then she he just feels kind of like good about it. And it really becomes this thing, you know, they're you know, I, we've all probably had this at some point. You're just like sending multiple messages a day. Um but and 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 one of the reasons they can't really meet is because she he's in he's in he's at Notre Dame, which I don't even remember where it is. Where it's is in it? South Bend, Indiana. South Bend, Indiana, and she's wherever she is. I mean, she's it's not at like, Stanford. Oh, right, she's at Stanford. So it's not like they're super close, but also like he's got a schedule. He's playing games, and she's in school, and so the meeting doesn't happen for. Which of course, it's like you know, absence mm-hmm. makes the heart grow fonder, and it's just. But then. He really does want to meet her. I mean, hi, you kind of do want to meet. And she just keeps giving reasons why it can't happen. Like, it's sick, it's a family, oh, it's not this. Um, you want to take it from here, where, where it goes from here? I was just. Oh, my question was, I can't remember if, well, I guess it wouldn't have been newsworthy before she actually died. Like, who would have known? That's right. Only really his... Only really his best friend who had come from Hawaii with him and also was on the team, as I recall, kind of knew about it. Like he didn't tell his family because he knew his dad was going to be super judgmental. If he was like, I'm in love with a girl I've never met. His dad was going right. to be like, no, dude, that's not how we play it in this family. Right, um, right. Um, so, yeah, right. I guess. So, none so of this, this is happening from 2009 to 2013. And, and 2012. And I think you have to kind of go back in your mind a little bit to uh, a more innocent time um, before we're really aware of the ways that people can misrepresent themselves online. Now, um, you know, it's true. Like one of the things this this story makes a point of is that, you know, the word catfishing really wasn't in the no. vernacular at the time. You know, the 2009, when they meet, um, that wasn't a word that we knew. Now, the documentary Catfish comes out in 2010, and the television show that's about it comes out in 2012. So it's starting to really become a thing during these years. But at the same time, this guy, you know, one of the, the reasons why I think he becomes so attached to her is because it becomes a really convenient way for him to have a full relationship at a time when he's not really available for a full relationship, right? right. He's he's a very, you know, he's a football player. He's And I think one of the other things we have to make clear is that he was very alienated at this Catholic yes. college. Yes. So he had come from a very tight knit Polynesian family. You know, Nancy's already mentioned he's very Mormon. And, um, you know, he goes from an island paradise to South Bend, Indiana. He doesn't know anybody. Yeah. He doesn't and really it's a fit in. School. It's just, it's, he's, it's totally not. And yeah. Oh, and by the way, his girlfriend is, is, of course, she's Polynesian. Now, She's in, very religious. Very religious. Um, now, the person who we will get to, who is the girlfriend, uh, in fact, also was in in real life, uh, or in truth, was Polynesian as well. Yes, I believe. That's right. And 
So the person doing this had like knew a lot of the right words, but this is okay. So I have written about so many con artists and catfishers and the way they do it. And we, we all know this. How does a psychic or how does someone that's doing a three card Monty, how do they, how do they make you believe them? Well, all they, they know certain things about you, which they pick up super quick, right? I mean, a three card Monty player or a, or, or, or a fortune teller on the street will, will actually get you to say a few things and you don't even realize you're saying and that she can kind of latch onto that and, and, and create these commonalities with you. And, and definitely people that are going to swindle you will do that too. I've, I've written about that a lot, but you know, on Facebook, you have all these things about yourself already, like how old you are, where you're from, maybe your religion, what you like, the music you like, the food you like. So the person that wound up catfishing uh, Matiteo already had like this ready-made uh, menu from which to say, oh my God, me too. So yes, he he was lonely. Um, he felt that he needed connection and, and he found it with her. Okay, so let's pivot to what's behind this girlfriend. So this is, I'll introduce an, a character named Renaya. This is a, mm -hmm. at the time, this is a, a young man who has been a football player as well. Um, he's involved in his church. He's feeling very estranged. It is not a spoiler to tell you that Renaya eventually transitions to a woman named Naya. And so that is part of this story. We find this out at the beginning of the documentary. Um, but for purposes of just telling the story, I'm going to refer to this person as Renaya, which was how he identified at the time. And so one of the things he's doing is discovering that, you know, he has some curiosities about sexuality. He wants to play around. He finds this sort of alternative space in the internet and he creates this persona, this persona named Lene. He uses a photo of this very attractive woman that he went to high school with. He uses all her pictures and he starts creating little relationships with people. Um, and one of the things that he finds, uh, you know, it, it, it's this like, it's this like beautiful escape from whatever the, the frustration of his real life is, but it always has to end when the person wants to meet, right? That's going to be like the killer is when the person says, you know, Hey, I, I really want to meet you. Then it's like, then Lene, quote unquote, has to come up with a reason like or either unfriend this person, disappear. But it's almost like this this relationship with Monte is just too good to give up. They have gotten like the story has gotten too big. They both need it. It's almost like this delusion that they both need. And so it just keeps growing and growing. And so, you know, Lene does things like uh, when Monty asks, you know, like, hey, can we FaceTime? There's a lot of kind of like, oh, you know, my FaceTime isn't working. Uh, my phone is broken. But then, like, Lene has to come up with something really big. And, you know, because otherwise this is not going to keep going. And so the story gets told that Lene has been in a drunk driving accident, was hit by a drunk driver and is in critical condition. And Renaya, pretending to be Lene's brother, calls Monty 
you know, Lene's been in an accident. And then, of course, Monty's, you know, really upset. And then and then this is the part of the story that just blew my mind, which is that, okay, so, so Lene is supposedly, like, in critical condition. And Monty, um, they put the phone up to Lene, and all he can hear is kind of... <sighs> you know, like the, the breathing and he starts talking to her and then somebody gets back on the phone and says, you know, when you were talking to her, she responded, she got better. So he decides to do this every night for the next month. And that's where I literally, like my mouth was actually a jar that this had gone on. I mean, I, you know, there was some question as to whether or not Monty Teo is involved in this when this story first hit. I really got the sense from this documentary that he did not and he was fully credulous. Would you agree with that? Fully credulous. Yeah. Fully credulous. I Okay, so when I was watching this, there's, um, there's a part in the documentary where someone says, oh, how could he have ever believed it? How could he have believed a voice on the phone that was like, I mean, it was a dude being a girl. Like, how could he have believed that? I'm like, oh my God. So, you know, and I'll put a link to it. I've written about Laura Albert. Laura Albert, who is a middle-aged woman from Brooklyn, but if for a part of the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, pretended to be a teenage transgender HIV positive hooker boy in San Francisco, um, took in hundreds of celebrities by talking on the phone as J.T. Leroy, became a literary sensation. I mean, this is sort of like the original catfisher. Um, and then always, 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 this is what these people do. They use illnesses. Illnesses is something that we feel sympathy for. Okay. You mm -hmm. can't say like, oh man, I wanted a green car and I got a brown one. People are like, well, deal with it. Right. My cheeseburger was rare instead of medium rare. Well, too bad. Well, you tell someone you have leukemia or you're HIV positive. If you've been in a car accident, most people be like, holy shit. And like, want to do whatever you can. So this is absolutely the hallmark of a con artist. Like they, they almost all use illness. It's just, it's just super, super common. Um, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think a, a lot of these stories, whether it's about catfishing or con artists, you know, they always capture our attention. They're fascinating stories. And, you know, I think it's really easy to be like, well, how would anybody fall for that? I think one of the reasons why they capture our attention is that just like, we are, vulnerable human beings that are uh, probably underestimate the extent to which we are willing to believe something that we want to believe. All of us. I, I think absolutely. Well, almost all of us. I think, uh, I think sociopaths do not have that. Um, they don't feel empathy the way other people do. Like it's literally just like a blank. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I mean, I met so, so with Laura Albert, you know, when, when the walls started closing in and people wanted to meet her, she actually created, she enlisted her sister-in-law, who was a small woman, to dress as this sort of kind of Andy Warhol-esque looking character with dark glasses and a, and a white wig to impersonate JT so that there would be an actual person. It's almost as if Renaya, you know, well, Renaya did, in fact, did, in fact, enlist someone to play the character of the woman that uh, Monty Teo thought that he was talking to, if only very briefly. Mm -hmm. um, 
But in Which any we shouldn't case, mention because there's no, some yeah. really wonderful yeah, surprises. Some... I mean, part of like we already know what the story is going into this, but part of why I would recommend seeing it. And by the way, um, it is actually in a docu series called Untold. Yeah, which looks so, yeah. absolutely fascinating. It yeah, almost looked, so, at first I thought it was, you know, 30 for 30, the ESPN yeah. series. Okay, I almost thought it was like, it's kind of seems like it's a little bit in that vein. So I, I would definitely be, because come on, sports is just such an amazing arena, no pun intended, for, for stories, right? Um, oh, wait, Great so human what, dramas. By the way, did I ever tell you that I kind of had a catfishing story of my own? When I first started online dating, and I think that was really crucial to it. I was new to the landscape, and I was on OkCupid, and I met this guy that just wanted to talk on the phone. And one of the weird things about me, because I'm a child of the 80s, is that I absolutely love talking on the phone. And we would have these really long, like for the first week and a half. And his story was that he had a daughter. And so everything was getting, you know, I got to go because I've got, I take care of this daughter. I'm the only one that takes care of her. And he kept canceling things. And eventually I realized, okay, wait, there's something really off about this person. Yeah. And I start trying to research him. So I actually wrote a story for Salon that I'll link called My Fake Online Boyfriend because I tried to turn wow. the tables on him and catch him in his lies. Um, because, you know, the thing is, is that like you never know the extent to which somebody is is lying online. Like most of us might like people will shave off a couple years of their of their age, or maybe they shave up a, a couple pounds. You know, are you dealing with somebody that is like, like low, like maybe he was married and didn't want to meet. Maybe, maybe, um, he's, uh, like not even living in Dallas. Like what is the extent of the deception here? So I kind of tried to turn the tables on him. It's a fun little story. I'll, I'll link it. Oh um, God, I it, can't wait to find out yeah. what you found out. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I caught on to it fairly early. I would say like in the in the second week. And basically, what you know, this was somebody who, you know, when I first met him, I was like, oh, wow, he's so interesting. He was developing like television shows with Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban lives in Dallas. I remember one of the shows that he told me he was developing, which, you know, was a show called Topless Chefs, which was about strippers oh. cooking. Oh, Sarah. Sarah. I, mean, no, I know. I know. Except I will say one thing, which is I was like, that sounds exactly like a show that Mark Cuban would develop. Oh my God. I mean, uh, sorry. They, these people can be pretty funny. They can be pretty clever. I got taken in by a con guy and I have, it's a, it's a very short scene in my book to the bridge, uh, where I got, you know, this is, I write, I've written about so many of these flipping people and when faced with it, it was a car salesman. I, 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 I caved. You just don't recognize it. You don't recognize it because because you trust people. You don't think people are going to do these things for you. So one thing I wanted to mention, and it's not a spoiler, but when 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 uh, Menti Teo, when this was discovered, when the Deadspin article came out, I have to say I was very um, I was very pleased with the way Notre Dame st stood behind him. Mm -hmm. But man, oh Manischewitz, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, the. People were really, really, really cruel. It was so, I mean, we've all, we've, we've written about this and been part of it so many times, how people will turn on you uh, social media wise, but not just that. I mean, you know, he was expected, like expected to be like a very high, high up top first round draft 
picked, I think there were like 32 of them or something. Well, he wasn't. I mean, he did eventually get chosen, but it was, people were so afraid of what had happened to him, not only because, or they considered it so, um, it was like plutonium because either A, because he was a liar because they didn't know yet, or, and he'd been in on this thing, or B, that what kind of leadership qualities do you have if you are someone that gets taken in mm. by this? But the documentary does an extremely uh, good job of unpacking. And what's also interesting is the whole the whole transitioning thing, which of course, um, of course, I don't I, I don't think he was aware of it the entire filming, meaning Monte Teo. Right. It's, you know, they, they actually have something in the beginning that says, like, none of the people that were interviewed for this realize that Renaya has transitioned to Naya, you know, which which gives you sympathy for this individual. I mean, this was somebody that was playing around with their identity, trying to find their comfort, but but seems to be caught in this idea that it's a fantasy, doesn't seem to understand the human collateral damage. It's unclear if this is somebody who is a sociopath or just deeply immature. What were your thoughts? I think it's the latter. I think it's just so incredibly deeply immature. And her lack of penitence, I mean, there's there are moments when she's like, I, you know, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. But, you know, I had to because, I mean, I, 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 it, it, it's unbelievably shocking. Also, to not really understand this person, meaning Monte Teo, who is in many ways on the world stage, who is playing for, um, for is playing for the championship. That you're doing this to this person is just, I mean, the selfishness, the blindness of your selfishness mm-hmm. is, is, is unbelievable. And, I, and I have to say, I mean, it's a level of blindness, selfishness, and immaturity that borders on mentally fucking ill. I mean, this is mm-hmm. I, how you treat another human being like this because, you know, it's important to me is incredible. Uh, I, I don't, I did not find her to be a sympathetic character. I was not, I was not, you know, they they try to have that very, I'm not going to say what it is, but this very sort of calming moment at the end. And I was like, yeah, great. I mean, I'm, I, you know, fine. I, I hope your life is, is pleasant. I'm, I, I don't want anyone to have an unpleasant life, but it seemed to me, uh, in many ways, sort of, um, sort of a faint, like, oh, don't, don't look at everything I've done. Look over here at how happy I am now. It's like, great, great. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's hard to feel, yeah, I, I don't want anybody to have a bad life, but when you see the kind of wreckage that this created in Monty Teo's life, it's just I'm like, oh my God, it's shocking. you know, and, and I, and I do think that this kind of thing happens on lower levels all the time, you know, married men who want escape valves from their own marriage, People that, you know, pretend to live in cities that they don't live in. Um, You know, all sorts of ways that people just selfishly need the feeling of escape that this relationship can give them. And they treat you like you're just a fantasy figment. Well, we recommend it. We recommend. I I do. And it's it's quick. It's two. um, It's two. uh, It's two hour uh, segments. Yes. And. um, if any of our if readers, readers, if any of our listeners do watch, and if you watch any of the other uh, segments, let us know. I'm I'm up to watching more um, uh, of the um, 
of the series. And this was recommended to us by a listener named Justin. So we should give him a shout out. Thank you, Justin. Keep, keep up all the recommendations. They're really, they're really great for us because as you know, Sarah and I are big consumers of media in its many forms. And um, I'm always looking for good recommendations. Um, I can't say that I was like super, super happy with the article that you uh, linked to me about um, a week and a half ago. I think it was. No, less than that. I think it was a week ago. It appeared I guess it was in this past Sunday's New York Times, but they their opinion pages, their Sunday opinion pages, you know, post earlier. They post on Friday or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I sent yeah. you a story that was headlined, Maternal Instinct is a Myth that Men Created. Um, I'm just going to read one other, I'll um, read one quote from the piece. Um, and then we'll kind of, we can backtrack a little into it. But this was the one that really confused me. And, I, and I'm being... I'm in earnest here because I am very confused by the second part of this sentence. Maternal instinct um, was constructed over decades by men. I can't read my own handwriting. By men, something an image of what a mother should be, diverting our attention from what she actually is and calling it science. Okay, so the, the statement is men have been creating this image of what a mother should be, diverting our attention from what she actually is. What, what, and calling it science. What is the actually is part is my question. Okay. Um, I think what this story is attempting to do is pushing back on an idea of mother of a sort of perfection of motherhood or an idyllic quality of motherhood that motherhood is um either instinctive meaning easy like like you know it without having to work or that it's naturally fulfilling and this was was something, this was a myth that was perpetuated over the decades. But, but, but the problem is this is all getting lumped under the, the phrase maternal instinct. I'm not exactly sure what that means. She never actually defines the term. Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell you where she lost me. I mean, I, first of all, I, I, I had someone comment <clears throat> when I put this on, uh, on Twitter, um, said, uh, yeah, the idea that there's no such thing, because she's basically saying there is no such thing. It's a myth. She said that that's the title of the piece. Maternal instinct is a myth. And he's like, yeah, well, I would advise you not to get between a mother bear and her cubs. Okay. Which would be, you know, what is that? What is that if, if, if that is not an instinct to protect your children? Is that, is that, is that a learned behavior? Did the male bears teach her to do that only for their own benefits of what they could just like hang out and like take a swim in the river? Um, here, here's, here's where she lost me. She lost me very, very early. This was like the second or third, um, paragraph and I'm, I'm, I'm conjoining two sentences here, but here's where she lost me. Um, she's talking about a woman, uh, who lives in an apartment building who has a baby. And there's a woman like on another floor of the apartment building who has twins. And every once in a while, they'll like stop on the stairs and talk to each other. And the one woman who has the one baby who's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of challenging. She only gets back from the other woman that it's all hearts and flowers all the time. So this is what the writer wrote. 
All around her swirled near rapturous descriptions of the joys of new womanhood, of new motherhood, the woman who is able to instantly intuit and satisfy her baby's every need. Okay, she lost me. She lost me because she is trying to sweeten her argument with absolute, with superlatives and 100%. I am a mother. I have known many mothers, as have you. And you've had a mother. I do not know one woman that has said that she is able to instantly intuit and satisfy every one of her baby's needs. You have completely weakened your argument when you state things that way, when you say it is either black or it is white. If you had said, you know, it's the fact that we're supposed to feel like we can intuit and satisfy our baby's needs, but you know what? A lot of the time we can't and it's hard and you're bleeding still and you're tired and you're crying and you say to your your husband, as I did, I can't change her. My stitches and my cesarean hurts. He's like, I know, baby, but we gotta, you know, we gotta work through this. Then I'd be with her. But she's not doing this. She's not allowing for any tiny bit of daylight. It has to be either we are 100 percent or it's nothing. I I got extremely angry at this. I don't understand what the end game is. And I'm also going to posit that she doesn't either. This piece wound up rambling across like 600 acres of uh, ideas. It's very all over the place. Uh, I'm going to also point out something about this story that I think might speak to some of its weaknesses. This is an excerpt from a book. Uh, which... Yeah, but and look, you know but what? she put it together, right? Don't I you know, put it together? I know she put it together, but let me just tell you something. As an editor, excerpts always seem like a good idea because it's material that's already written and it's, sometimes it's coming to you for free or like it's very, it's cheaper than, than having to get other writing. Okay, great. This is wonderful. This person's already done this research, but they're taking a book length argument and they're trying to put it into a bite-sized chunk. This was not done particularly skillfully. So one of the things that this story does in the beginning is tell you the maternal instinct is a myth and the science will prove it. And I'm going to tell you, and we never get to the science. Exactly. The exact, there's a, there's a, there's a quote there that says new research. And this is in quotes. I wrote this down. New research debunks the idea of the maternal instincts that we don't get that research. Presumably the book, which is called mother brain, um, is going to be telling us about this new research. She never gets around to it. What we hear instead are a series of completely relatable stories about women who found that motherhood was harder than they expected. This is an idea that is worth pushing back on. We also hear about some of the ways that religion and later science have used biological differences to keep women down. They, you know, like like there have been arguments made that because of the maternal duty, you know, women shouldn't be educated. Things like this that happened in the 18th, 19th century. You know, that is true. We should acknowledge that. But at the same time, just because these biological differences have been used to keep women down in the past, you know, it doesn't mean that we deny that they exist. And it seems to me that this this article reaches too far 
when it tries to basically say that, like, look, there is no such thing as this. And, you know, I, I, um, there were several people that pushed back on this story. I, I read it. You know, I always try to read these pieces with an open mind. And so I was reading it and I was just sort of like, wait, what? Wait, what? 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 <laughs> and each like each time she's making a pivot, I'm going like, what the hell? And this was one of those where I opened the comments in the New York Times and I was like, OK, this is all of the things that I was thinking about because the readers are really like all saying, you know, like, hey, what about the animal kingdom? What about, you know, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. Should, this is a, sorry, but it is the case, you know, the times, you know what, the times, their opinion pages can sometimes drive people bonkers and you feel like it's kind of slanted or canted in one way, but they also, they also run really great opinion pieces. But I will say the ones that are driving you bonkers, Go look at the comments. You will be very heartened that the readers like, "Hey, wait a second. Like they're they're the readers are bringing up usually the questions you want to hear and these are not like it's not filtering the comments for you. It's like mm -mm. top top comments, like the most starred or whatever. You know, people are people had a lot of I had one one small thing to say and it's not really germane, but I, for some reason I thought of it. So they're talking about there's no such thing as a mother instinct, right? And it made me think of Sylvia Plath. All right, Sylvia Plath, the poet, um, who committed suicide by putting her head in the oven, which is obviously she was in great pain. She'd been writing about depression and various things for her entire career. What did she do before she put her head in the oven? Do you remember, Sarah? I don't. She left milk and bread for her sleeping children. Hmm. She left them some milk and bread for when they woke up so they could get to it. I think they were like three years old and 13 months or something like that. I would call that mother instinct, even under extreme duress. She was taking care of her children in her last, in her last moments. So. I've heard the idea that the maternal instinct is a myth floated out there before, and I was curious about it. So I did a little bit of digging around in what anthropology and what anthropologists have said. Um, there's also a, there's a good response to this um, by an evolutionary biologist named Jerry Coyne, who kind of point by point goes through, you know, how this this particular idea went kind of far afield. And in that, um, in the comments to that, I found several female anthropologists that were kind of arguing about the phrase maternal instinct is something of a, um, they argue about whether it's more of a maternal drive or an instinct. Um, this to me is a little bit of a of a esoteric point. I don't really quite understand it. I'm not really sure um, I understand. I mean, drive sounds a little more imperative. But yeah, but it's based difference? on hormones. <laughs> like it's it's something that that is created because of hormones in your body, as opposed to something that is innately born in oh. you. But even that doesn't quite make sense to me. No. Um, but the, I, mean, I couldn't find. Not many people believe that this is a social construction, um, which is what this New York Times article seems to be arguing. Um, there is also 
also there's an anthropologist named Sarah Blaffer Hardy. And, uh, you know, she's somebody that's probably done the most research on uh, maternity and, and motherhood. She wrote a book in 2009 called Mothers and Others. I mean, one of the things that I think she does in looking at stories about things like infanticide or abandoning children is she's, you know, she's complicating this story of what it means to be a mother. Um, and, you know, she's also looking at, um, one of the things that her research does is look at the way that across history, various other figures that were not mothers also provided mothering in, 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 in other words, grandmothers, aunts, you know, this idea that she, she, I think she's trying to complicate the idea that there can only be mothering from one individual, um, but well, that, that I okay. So and if, if somebody knows more, I don't know a ton about Sarah Blaffer Hardy. I do know that she's the person that kind of gets brought up the most in terms of writing about this maternal instinct. But you know, I, I think a lot of what these anthropologists are 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 doing is again they're complicating this cultural narrative around the idea that there can only be one kind like. Like one kind of mothering is always superior or that it's instinctual because we know that it's difficult, it's costly, it's, you know, a lot of women decide to do it and that doesn't mean that they're lesser women. Um, Gay men raise children, trans men raise children, you know, like there are all sorts of different kinds of mothering that we can have. It seems to me that we're trying to make an argument for that. Um, which is fine, but to deny that women's bodies, which are uniquely designed for reproduction, don't come with certain instincts and imperatives, just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I, I definitely think the conversation or the to talk about mothering should be complicated. Should we should complicate it? Why not? And that is exactly what this article didn't do. It is exa- it closed the door on what we definitely know to be true that there is some sort of mother drive that starts with the fact that you can make this child. This is not just like some random thing or some you know God made you have this burden of bearing children. Um, and there are definitely I know them personally. I know people who have become mothers that it didn't work for them. They just were like not cut out to be a day to day mother. They were better as like a weekend parent. They worked it out with their with their spouse. It's like. We all are built differently, and we. But you cannot. And there are definitely men who are very. I mean, my my daughter's dad was so so mothering, basically. Like he was very, very, very hands on, kind of like we would think more of like a woman would do. So yes, let's complicate it. Definitely, let's not make it doctrinaire. But that I think the New York Times tried because again, it's, we're going to overcorrect. We're going to overcorrect them in our overcorrection. It can't. We can't allow even one teeny glimmer of light that a woman would have any possible understanding of either wanting to be or wanting to understand what her child needed. Just, well, just, I think this headline did not serve the piece. I noticed no. later when I was looking around Twitter, I think they changed it to the pernicious I, myth of like. Of the of maternal instinct, which is oh, a little bit of a broader, it's a it's a broader idea, um, 
they they took away this idea that like the myth is one that men created. Oh, that's interesting because I heard, I read that, but I didn't know which the I didn't know which was the old the the old headline and which was the new. And yes, we have to we, as we've said, not that it really matters that much, but um, not always, but often you do not write your own headlines. Um, you know, I, you sometimes do. I sometimes do, and they keep it, but often they don't. And and so. you know, when I think about the pernicious myth of the maternal instinct, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is a friend of mine that just recently had a baby, and she was telling me that the first month she was in absolute despair because she was like, I don't know what to do. I'm in over my head. I've made a huge mistake. This idea that the instinct, like instinct should be a switch. I think this is another thing that, that like the Sarah Blaffer Hardys are trying to push back on is that like the maternal instinct is a process. It's not a switch that turns on in the brain. And that would be a useful article. If this woman had started, if it had been called the pernicious myth of whatever, um, if she had started it by saying, you know, by a couple months in, most women kind of get the hang of these things and you do all these crazy things you didn't even know that you had, these, these maternal instinct things kick in. But man, the first couple months are really hard. Then <laughs> she would have, I think, had a lot more people going, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. I experienced that too. But we didn't get that. So, um, Well, that was so, a fun day on Twitter. Yeah, there were lots of um, fun... Uh, opinions about that one. Um, I tried to find people that were, that were, uh, praising it. The ones that I found that were praising it were basically saying they related to the stories inside of it. And and I do think that's where it's a valuable resource. You know, there are a lot of women, mothers that feel alone. It's much harder than they think. They want more, you know, there's so many things that the piece brings up that I think are worth talking about. You know, the lack of childcare, um, the lack of support for mothers. I mean, all these things are so important to talk about. Um, and yet you turn up when you turn us off right at the beginning. I it's know. hard. And also it would just scattered. But I have a question for you. Yes. Sarah, what's in your hot box? Well, interesting that you asked me that. I do have something in my hot box. Well, it's a little dorky, but I... I, I, love, I love dorky. I love I mean, dorky, Sarah. <laughs> I'm a little wonky. But I read this really... I really liked this book. I, I don't always love books about writing and for writers and write like that whole genre of like how to write books and things like that. But a friend of mine had recommended this book called The Writing Life by Annie Dillard. Have you ever heard of it? She was a, I went to Wesleyan and she was, I think, a, a professor there. Well, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. fiction writer. And she's, I believe, written a couple different books about writing. And this is a slim little book that she wrote in, I think, like 1989. And it's kind of a short book about what it means to live a life with words and, you know, the exhilaration and the frustration of it. It's not really a, it's not really about um, tips, okay? It's really more like a collection of anecdotes of like what it is to live this life. And it's quirky. She's a beautiful writer. She has a lot of like, like interesting metaphors. There was just like a great Thoreau quote that I really loved that I'm going to share with you. It was know your own bone, gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it and gnaw at it still. I am so sorry. Know your own bone. Did you did you go to a dirty place? I did. I went, yeah, I, I, I knew that I that might happen. <laughs> know your own bone. Yeah, you know it's funny. I <laughs> oh god, you know I read that and I just didn't even think didn't that. Think we and as I was saying you. it out loud, I was like, 
oh, wow, know oh, your wow. own bone really sounds <laughs> like something a 13-year-old might write on a bathroom stall. And I was like, just go ahead with it, Sarah. She's not going to hear that. And then she did. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a book about masturbation and the joys of self-pleasuring. And the, yeah, wow. Wow, there's such a difference between when you read things and when you say them out loud sometimes. Sorry. We might have to call this episode Know Your Own Bone. Know Your Own Bone. That's it. Um, oh, boy, Sarah. Um, shall I tell you what's in my hot box? Absolutely. Okay, so I am, uh, I, I sometimes crochet baby blankets for my friends. I've been crocheting since I was a kid. And the only thing I know how to do is go back and forth. So I can't make anything like a mitten, but I can make a blanket. And I am now at the moment making one for uh, Barry Weiss and, and her wife, Nellie Bowles, who are having a baby soon. Um, and when you are crocheting, you can't really watch TV, you can't read, you can't exercise. So you can listen to podcasts. So I listened to a podcast yesterday called Wind of Change. Oh, and Wind it, of Change. That's an oldie but a good one. Sure, that was huge a couple of years ago. Oh, was it? I didn't realize how old it was. Well, anyway, the um, the uh, the narrator and creator is uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, who you have spoken, you've heard us talk about. He is the author of Say Nothing, the amazing, amazing book that I listened to on tape and I highly recommend listening to it on tape um, about the troubles in, in Ireland. It's an amazing book. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker. He also wrote The Snakehead, which is about uh, a crime here in Chinatown about 20 years ago, right in my neighborhood, like literally in the blocks around my house, which I, I threatened to do a little book club with, which I never did. I'm sorry. Um, and anyway, he this is about... Um, a song that was written by the band Scorpions called Wind of Change and released in, I believe, 1989 or 1990. And apparently he got word, Patrick Radenke, from a friend, a guy named Michael, who you will love this guy. I love this guy. He's, he's in it just sporadically, who said, oh, yeah, that was written by the CIA. It was written by the CIA. Scorpions uh, put it out, and it was basically to encourage, you know, after uh, after the fall of communism, this was like one of the big big things, and it and it encouraged this to happen. Well, I've since heard actually Matt Welch said to me like uh, it might might not really exactly be true, but it's what a great idea to write something out. This podcast goes in down so many crazy rabbit holes from like you know Motley Crue and then drug dealing, and that's a, it's. It is so much fun. I'm on, I think there's eight episodes. I think I'm on seven or six or seven. I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's super fun. And what's really interesting too, you know, you read Patrick Radden Keefe and he's so assiduous and he's so serious and it's he's writing about such difficult, complicated issues. He's a goofball. He narrates in the in the thing. He's like super funny. He's like laughing and he's just like, he's like a super fun guy, which is just, great he just becomes this completely rounder character for me so um so that is a that i recommend nancy i have a question for you yes ma'am what is the name of this meandering but a absolutely exhilarating podcast this exhilarating episode of this exhilarating podcast is this it's called smoke em if you got him and That's we are right, actually babe. 
We are on episode 34 today, um, and we also are dropping for you on Wednesdays. There's an open thread on Wednesdays, which means there's one up today. Um, I threw up a little kind of bonus narration of a book that I'm I'm actually uh, I'm dropping. I'm publishing on Substack every Monday on my other Substack, Make More Pie. We'll have links and everything here. Um, but I think we've got a lot of interesting content for you guys and maybe some other cool stuff uh, coming up. So, Sarah, should should they subscribe? Oh my gosh, you should absolutely subscribe. And you should definitely pay for a subscription because, you know, girls have needs. So um, not, not for bones or anything like that, but we have- Know we have your, own bone. Uh, know your own bone. Subscribe to smoke them if you got them. <laughs> know um, your own bone. I don't know. The thing about know your it's the, the problem is the bone. It's the I know, I know, I know. Bone, but can you can okay? you hear why I thought it was profound when I read it? Yeah. I can. And the problem sometimes is, you know, you think these things are profound when you read them. Like, they, they move you. you they, write, it moved you, me. You, move the, you write them in your journal. And then later on, you're like, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it, yes, you can You can still have the impression that it made, but then saying it out loud, it's it's hard. Writing books are hard in general, as we know. They're just, it's it's tough. So. Um, well, right, Sarah, everybody. Uh, Okay, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back with you in a couple of days. And Sarah Heffler, always good to see you. Know your own bone, Nancy Rommelman. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The world is closing in. Did you ever think that we could be so close like brothers? The future's in the air. Can feel it. Blowing with the wind of change.